last week's episode in 1 Kings, if you weren't here with us, let me remind you that Adonijah has tried to overthrow David. He doesn't invite Solomon because he's going to kill him off. Nathan the prophet, Bathsheba, and Solomon find out about it. They go and tell David, you've got to man up or we're going to get killed. The nation's going to be broken into civil war. Help us! At the end of the chapter, he does, and he sends his prophet Nathan to go and anoint Solomon as king. Adonijah finds out about it. He realizes treason has been caught. He runs and throws himself on the horns of the altar. Solomon has him pulled off and says, if you're worthy, I'll let you survive and give you mercy. And what we learned in that chapter is this. When a leader doesn't man up, a nation spirals down. When a leader won't man up, a nation, a community, a family, a marriage spirals down. We looked at this definition of what it means to man up as a leader. Someone who rejects passivity. We saw Solomon was, I mean, David was awakened to the fact that he had been wooed by passivity. To man up is to accept responsibility, which David did, we saw last week. To lead courageously and to expect the greater reward. But when leaders don't do this, we saw a pattern. And the pattern is three C's. With lack of clear leadership, there's confusion. Into that confusion comes a spirit of control, the mutiny of Absalom and the mutiny now of Adonijah, which ultimately leads to catastrophe with the death of Absalom in 2 Samuel, and we'll find out the death of Adonijah today. So picking up that, we're now in chapter 2. And two tools that are helpful when you're studying a Bible passage to sort of get the context of where you are. One is uh, BibleMap.org. If you put in in the passage you're in, 2 Kings chapter 1, or 1 Kings chapter 2 rather, it gives you a map of all the different locations you're talking about. So you can figure where are they and how far are they from other locations. And so David sent Nathan with Solomon to anoint him at Gahan, which is near Enrogel, which is where Adonijah set himself up. So as you pull up a map here, and you can use that on your own, you can see they're very close to each other. They're within hearing distance of each other. So when there's a big cheering section for Solomon's uh, being uh, installed as king, they can hear it in Enrogel. And the place David chose to have Solomon anointed king was this place, in Gehan. Gehan is a natural spring. It will later be known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. It was a natural spring that could feed, uh, nourish, provide for about 2,500 people. And he chose this place because he wants Solomon to be known as the leader who would be a a source of living water to the people. And the people begin to cheer as the oil drips down his face. We now have a king. But now David wants to give a final speech to Solomon. And he's going to talk about how to man up. He's going to say, in order to man up, you need to do two things. You need to wake up your responsibilities and stand up to opposition. Wake up the responsibilities and stand up to opposition. Let's look at those things together. We begin in verse 1. David asked Solomon to wake up to his responsibilities. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. He charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Now, this is an interesting phrase because you wonder, like, what was David's Bible? What encouraged David? He's going to give this last speech to his son. That exact phrase is used in Joshua chapter 23 when Joshua is inspiring the people before his death. So it could be that David's you know, go-to Bible passage or go-to hero was Joshua. He says, well, I like that. I go the way of the earth. It sounds very manly. 
And then he lays out principles of manning up and to your responsibilities that are almost identical to what Moses told Joshua and now what Joshua told the people and now what David will tell Solomon. And here they are. I go the way of the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Demonstrate your manhood. Demonstrate by waking up to your responsibilities. What are those? Well, here's what it means to prove yourself or demonstrate you're a follower of God. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Realize you've been stewarded gifts and talents and opportunities in this moment of being the king. Walk in his ways. Don't just be a God follower. Walk it out. Live it out. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses. That you may prosper in all that you do. Again, this is Joshua chapter 1, if you want to go back and look at it. That the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me. I love this. This is a father giving a vision to his son, a spiritual heritage that God gave me. You are the fulfillment son of that heritage. God told me I would have one of my sons on the throne, and you're it. And if you will prove yourself a man, if you'll wake up these responsibilities, you will fulfill that. For God told me, if your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth in all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you will not lack a man on the throne. Now, there's a little bit of irony here in light of the last chapter that David is telling Solomon to wake up to his responsibilities. When we discovered the whole back half of his life, he pretty much was wooed into passivity. But to me, that's an incredible message of grace. That even as a parent, we can challenge our kids even through our own mistakes. Son, there's some times in my life I did it right and God honored me. There's some times that I didn't. And honestly, I have a lot of regrets. And I don't want you to have that pain. I don't want you to have that devastation. I don't want you to feel the consequences I felt. Boy, you want everything God has for you. So I love even the grace here in the midst of this challenge. But he's saying ultimately, wake up your responsibilities. And he's going to give him three specific things in the next few verses. Um, some commitments he needs him to keep. He's got some kindness he wants him to keep and some threats he needs to be aware of. So here they go. Three responsibilities. The first one is I've got some unfinished commitments that I, as the administration of David, need to pass on. And you need to fulfill those in the next administration. Moreover, you know also that Joab, this has been David's general for many, many years, the son of Zariah, you know what he did to me. And what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, to keep in mind this guy's name, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. Now, this wasn't the ethics of war. He said this was an unjust manslaughter. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime. He put the blood of war in his belt. He stained with the guilt of what he did. It's around his waist and on his sandals or on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Now, this is not a father saying, I'm vengeful, but I never got around to it. Go be vengeful for me. This is one administration, the judicial branch, communicating to the next administration, I had a guy on parole for a while, or I've had a guy awaiting his sentence. It's now time to make sure that that sentence gets executed in your administration. So it's almost like they're passing the notes of all these court cases that have not yet been fulfilled and say, make sure you get these court cases fulfilled. Here's a guy who had two unjust killings and he's never been held to account. By the way, he was one of my best friends. And by the way, I give him a lot of mercy, but justice needs to be prevailed. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, it's time for picture pages with Pastor Chad. So I'm going to take you and we're going to summarize First and Second Samuel to keep track of who all these people are. So I did a little cartooning for you to keep track of who everybody is. So King Saul has died, 
But his son, Ishbosheth, so see the guy with the bow tie, that's Ishbo, he's got an ish and a bow, that's Ishbosheth. He is now in charge, and he's going to try and take over the kingdom of Israel. And he has a general named Abner, the guy with all the abs, so that's Abner. So Abner, David has become king, David's at the bottom, he's king, he's very happy, he's the king now, Saul's gone. But Abner and Ishbosheth are still trying to take over. Well, they have a, a conflict, and Abner's like, you know, I'm done with this. I'm going to go to David and just say, let's unify the kingdom. So he, as the opposing general, goes down to David. Abner does. says, let's unify the country. I know I've been against you. Let's, let's unify. David says, that sounds good. Go in peace. And he goes in peace. So Abner's on his way back to unify this. And Joab shows up. Remember, Joab was David's general. He thinks David's naive. Oh, he's not really going to do that. So Joab... The, the bald guy with the big J uh, tattoo on his head, Joab. He, he comes and sees Abner. He says, hey, Abner, I heard you and David had a talk. Yeah, we sure did. C- come here. Shh, shh. Can I talk to you privately? Sure. He gives him a big hug, pulls out a knife, stabs him, kills him. Peacetime, unjust, wasn't war ethics, immoral. So this is the first instance that David's talking about when he killed Abner. Then David gets set up as king. So now he's in the kingdom for many, many years. Sets up Jerusalem as the, the headquarters. And then Absalom, his son, tries to overtake it. And so David goes running out from the kingdom. And as he runs out, he comes ac- across a guy named Shemaiah. Shemaiah is this guy here who is cussing him out. He curses him, and he throws rocks at him. And he's going to be important in just a second. David runs from him, and he's now on the run from the whole Israelis uh, have come behind Absalom, and he's now the bad guy. But thank goodness there's one man, an 80-year-old guy named Benzilla. I think Godzilla with a B. Benzilla. Benzilla is over here, and Benzilla provides for him. And David says, if I ever get back to the kingdom, I want to provide for you. He's like, ah, I'm 80. I want to die here. I don't want to live in the kingdom. I don't want to have all that fancy-schmancy stuff. But here's my son. If you get back, reward my son. So that's going to be important in a second. Well, pretty soon, Absalom is killed. If you remember the story of Absalom, he had long hair. His hair gets caught in a tree. God's, David said, don't kill him. Joab, don't kill him if you can. Joab sees him in the tree. Could have spared him. He doesn't. He kills him. But it is in the spirit of war. So actually he doesn't address that in this conversation with Solomon. However, now that he's been killed, which again Joab did, David returns to a, an, a, a, a civil war because the Is- Israel, the north part of Israel, didn't want to go with David. They'd side with Absalom. Judah receives him back as king. And now they're like, well, what do we do? So David decides to reunify Israel by putting Judah and Israel together. However, there's a general that he replaces Joab with. And his name looks like a mashed potato, Amasa, Amasha. So mashed potato is the new general. So he begins to work with David to reunify Israel and Judah. And again, Joab says, hey, Amasha, I know you just demoted me. I know I just lost my job. Can we talk? Shh. He comes over next to him, pulls out a knife, guts him. All his guts come out, and he lets him slowly die in the street as all the soldiers come by. Ugh, who says the Bible's boring? Ultimately, David re- does reunify Israel, and they send this guy, the guy who cussed him out, Shemaiah, back to him to represent the northern, co- northern kingdoms to say, Hey, sorry I was wrong. Sorry I cussed you out. Sorry I threw the rocks at you. Will you forgive me and give me mercy as we put you back as king? All right, so there it is. That's First and Second Samuel. Now you understand what David's saying, which is Joab killed off this guy, Abner, and this guy, Amasa, unjustly, and you need to make sure justice is done here. All right, second thing he mentions. 
Responsibility number two. There's some kindnesses, some promises I made that I want you to fulfill. I had promised this guy, the sons of Barzilla, there he is, Barzilla, I promised him that he would be rewarded for providing for me when nobody else did. Everybody else turned their back on me except Barzilla. And I want you to make sure his sons, just like I promised, that they will sit among you and eat at your table. So they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And I love this because here is David saying, I want to be a man of my word. And when I make commitments, I fulfill them. I think many times today we're so flippant about our words. We say we're going to do things and we don't. We don't go back and actually let our yes be yes and our no be no. And, and David recognizes that he didn't fully fulfill that or wants to make sure it gets fulfilled in the next administration. He says, son, wake up to your responsibilities. There's some justice needs to be taken care of over here in the judicial branch. And then there's some benefits that need to be provided because of the commands, the words that I gave. The third thing, though, he says is, I want you to be aware of some threats. So again, keep in mind, Shemaiah, this is the guy we're about to talk about. Okay? So Joab had killed these two guys. All right? Then this is the guy's son who he's going to show the kindness to. And now he's going to address this guy, the guy who cussed him out, threw rocks at him, but also is the same guy who greeted him back when they unified the, the country. Okay, you got everything? Oh, here we go. So you see then that Shemaiah, foul-mouthed guy, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahura, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Maniah, when he came and met me at the Jordan, so later on he meets me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death by the sword. Okay, it's forgiven, it's all, we're all clear. But he says to Solomon, now listen, I told him I'd forgive him, and I did. But don't hold him guiltless. This is the kind of guy that one minute he pretends to be your friend, the first chance he had to go with the next administration, Solomon, he turned on me. Don't hold him guiltless. Watch out for this guy. He will turn and stab you in the back at a moment's notice. We'll find out in several chapters that's exactly what he does. So here again is a, a, a father turning to his son and saying, we've got to engage. You've got to be careful. There's responsibilities of manning up. There's kindnesses. And there's some threats you need to be aware of. What does it mean for you and I to wake up to our responsibilities? If God is our father was to talk to us, he would say, wake up, engage. If leaders don't step up, nations spiral down. Do you have words that need to be stepped up to? Do you have spiritual habits that you've said, well, I really ought to read the Bible more? But have you ever really stepped up to that, waking up to your responsibility? Do you keep your word? Have you ever waken up to spiritual disciplines of a prayer or fasting or financial giving? Have you waken up to taking a responsibility to apologize when you do something wrong? Have you taken the responsibility of investing in your marriage because your marriage maybe over the last couple of years has become a garden full of weeds? And maybe you're like, man, I need to take responsibility to start pulling some of those weeds. Maybe you found yourself in temptation. You need to wake up to those temptations and say, wow, I always think the water is, is greener on the other side. But the water is greener where I've been watering it and I've been neglecting my marriage. I need to step up as a father and engage with my kids because I'm only going to have this season with them for this season. I've got to engage. I remember a couple, a few years ago, uh, actually it goes back about 20 years now, um, they had become Christians. They had met because he was, had a personal trainer, which ended up being her. He ended up having an affair. They ended up you know, having this relationship, all the devastation you can imagine. They became Christians at our church, and they felt like God was convicting them to go back and repent of the ways in which they had got into this relationship. And I'll never forget them talking about this. 
and just going back and apologizing for the self-centeredness and the devastation that they have caused. And, and as followers of Christ, they want to wake up to take responsibility for what they've done in the past and try and make the decisions of following God in the future. What does it mean for you and I to wake up to our responsibilities? When I think of the speech between David and Solomon, it reminds me a little bit of the movie, um, The Incredibles. Because there's a speech in The Incredibles that sounds a little bit to me like David talking to Solomon. In fact, I want you to watch this clip and sort of feel David turning to Solomon saying, Engage, man, engage. Let's watch. Mom. Uh-huh. You're making weird faces again. No, I'm not. You make weird faces, honey. Do you have to read at the table? Uh-huh. Yeah. Smaller bites, Dash. Yikes. Bob, could you help the carnivore cut his meat? Dash got sent to the office again. Good. Good. No, Bob, that's bad. What? Dash got sent to the office again. What? What for? Nothing. He put a tack on the teacher's chair during class. You must have been booking. How fast do you think you were going? We are not encouraging this. I'm not encouraging. I'm just asking how fast you... Honey! First the car, now i got to pay to fix the table. car? What happened to the car? Here, I'm getting a new place. <clears throat> so, how about you, Vi? How's school? Nothing to report. You've hardly touched your food. I'm not hungry for meatloaf. What are you hungry for? Tony Ridinger. Shut up, you little idiot. Do not shout at the table. Honey? Kids, listen to your mother. She'd eat if we were having Tony loaf. interesting that David was like that. David, the back half of his uh, career in 2 Samuel, his family's fallen apart and he's not engaged. He's totally disengaged as a leader, as a king, as a father. And I think what, some of the, what he's speaking to his son is, boy, you, you got to see a front row seat to some of the passivity I had. Engage. Reject passivity. Lead courageously. Take responsibility. Expect the greater reward. Wake up to your responsibilities. But then he turns to these threats and says, now part of this process, you need to stand up against opposition. And that's what happens. So we're now back to Adonijah. Now, if you remember, Adonijah tried a hostile takeover, an overthrow of the kingdom, but got crushed last chapter. But he's back. And here we see almost a case study in narcissism. Now, narcissism, if you've done any study of narcissists, narcissists have a tendency to be egomaniacs. They have a need. The whole world's about them feeding their own you know, supply need for ego. They'll come on hostile sometimes, and then they can be very, um, very charismatic at other times. But it's ultimately always about them. And we're going to see these aren't just deep thoughts from Chad. This all comes directly to this passage. So watch what happens. First of all, narcissists pretend to be your friend. Adonijah, now this is the guy who tried to take over the kingdom just like ten verses ago. The son of Haggia came to Bathsheba. Now, if you remember, Bathsheba knew that her life was in danger 10 verses ago, maybe 20, because of this guy. So you think, oh, Adonijah showed up to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Whew, 
Sorry about that whole overthrow of the kingdom. Sorry about putting your life at risk. Sorry about putting your son Solomon's life at risk. You'd think he'd be here to apologize. But narcissists never can apologize. They can never take ownership of what they've done. Because of their inferiority, they can't actually own anything because that would make them feel bad about themselves. So it's always your fault. Now, as you go through this, you're going to see all of us have narcissistic tendencies. And if you recognize some Adonijah in yourself, that's good news. Because narcissists never see themselves as having a problem. So good news here, if you see a Lily's problem in yourself, that means you're not a narcissist. If you struggle with the same things he does, but he doesn't see it at all. Does not apologize, does not own anything. And now, since he couldn't take over the kingdom with a hostile takeover, he's going to slip in by being the nice guy. He comes to Bathsheba, the son of Solomon. And she says, do you come peaceably? Again, you're going to see Bathsheba is very naive. She actually gets totally hoodwinked and tricked by this narcissist. And he said, of course I come peaceably. I'm here. I'm peaceable. He says, I have something to say to you. I just want to share something with you. Sure, I tried to kill you off a few chapters ago. Don't worry about that. I lost chapter. I, I I just want to say something to you. Next verse. Narcissists feel entitled. Always entitled. It's always about them. Feel wrong. I can't believe you said that. You hurt my feelings. When I cussed you out and you, and you, and you said I shouldn't do that, that made me feel bad about me. That's a narcissist. And they feign false humility to control other people. And here it all is in that text. So she said, all right, well, say it. Oh, I'm glad we're all friends now. He said, well, you know the kingdom was mine. What? Here's his reality. His reality is the kingdom was his. He earned it. He got it. He deserved it. Even though he got it through treasonous mutiny. But in his mind, his reality is the kingdom was mine. We all know that, right? We all know that the kingdom was mine. And we all know that all of Israel has set their expectations on me. What about the people who just cheered for Solomon just like a few verses ago? Oh, they don't count. He dismisses certain things. Nothing will change his reality. He feels entitled to the kingdom. He feels entitled that everybody loves him. And now he's going to feign humility to try and control Bathsheba. However, however... I didn't get what I deserve. I didn't get what I should have had. I didn't get what was coming to me. I've been wronged. Can't believe how much I'm putting up with, but I'm a good guy. The kingdom has been turned over. And it's become my brother's. I can't even say his name, Solomon, just my brother. For it was his from the Lord. So I just did one little thing. I just did one little petition. I mean, I lost the whole kingdom and it was mine, but I'm going to be a bigger man. I just want one little thing. She says, all right, well, well. And don't deny me this one little thing, because you know what I deserve. And so I'm just asking this little thing. And she said, all right, say it. And now we see that narcissists triangulate and manipulate. Because, again, he doesn't go directly to Solomon. Even though Solomon, had just a few verses ago, rescued him from the horns of the altar. Just a few verses ago, he said, now prove yourself to be worthy, and I'll let you live. But he doesn't go directly to Solomon. He's triangulating, manipulating, working the system through Bathsheba. And he said, well, if you could just go please speak to King Solomon. But he won't refuse you. And that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite. I told you last week she'd be important and she'd show up this chapter. Because you weren't with us last week. David was dying. He's very old. He can't keep himself warm. So they hire a professional nurse. Her name was Abishag the Shunammite. So this is the last woman, though it was not a sexual relationship. She's a professional nurse. But she was the one who last shared David's bed. 
She kept him warm because he couldn't stay warm. Of all the women in the kingdom, why in the world would he want to sleep with, to be married to, Abishag the Shemite? Well, Bathsheba doesn't see the strategy. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. And Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her. After all, she just saved his life last chapter. Sat down on his throne, had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand, esteeming his mother Bathsheba. And she said, hey, I just desire one small petition for you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, well, ask it, my mother. I won't refuse you. She said, all right, could we let Abishag the Shemite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife? Dun, 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 dun. It seems like a small thing. It seems like not a big deal. But this is part of a master strategy that Adonijah has to overthrow the kingdom yet again. It didn't work with the hostile takeover, so now he's using the subtle nice guy approach. Bathsheba falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. She doesn't see it happening at all. She, she's just naive. Yet as Christians who believe in the problem of evil, you probably saw a lot of yourself. Oh, I have a tendency to gossip or, or not to go directly to things, to work around it because I don't like conflict or because I, whatever it is. Or I can see feeling wrong. I have a sort of self-pity. Poor me. I, I have that. It comes up occasionally and I end up saying things or doing things or thinking things that I shouldn't. It's in all of us. But a narcissist has been given fully over to it. So that in Romans 1, God gives you over to your sins. So how will Solomon respond? Well, I'll show you. He cuts through it all. King Solomon answered and said to her, his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shemite for Adonijah? Why don't you just ask for him the whole kingdom too? For he's my older brother. For him, why don't you ask for, for Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah? If he gets this, you know what he's going to do? He's going to say, I'm sleeping with the last person who slept with dad. I'm the rightful king. And I'm going to have a child by this woman. And who knows whether it was dad's child or my child. Who knows? I have the next royal child, the grandson, belongs in my family. My family is the, the, the new branch, the new royal priesthood that should come out of the kingdom. Solomon deduces all of this and says, I know what's going on here. Uh, he's going to set boundaries for this narcissist. He's going to say, not appropriate, no way, not on my watch. I gave you mercy last chapter. I told you to prove yourself to be worthy. You have it. You're still trying to take over the kingdom with a new strategy. We're done. And then he gives a speech in verse 23. May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. I know exactly what he's doing. Therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and has established a house for me as he promised. So he, he, you can see all these ways he's connecting the dots. I've been established. I've been confirmed. I've been set up. I see that Adonijah's plan is to use this to come against all of that. Therefore, Adonijah shall be put to death today. We're done. I saw how Absalom tried to mutiny, didn't get addressed. I saw how Adonijah tried at one time. I am not going to live with the constant stuff going on in the background that Dad did. I'm going to address this. We're done with it. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. Whew! It's like a soap opera going on here. It just gets better from this chapter on. And again, this premise that keeps coming back to is that if leaders don't man up by taking responsibility, rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, leading courageously, and accepting the greater reward, then the nation spirals down. 
Now keep in mind that there's a difference between state ethics, war ethics, and personal ethics. So this is not like, oh, wow, I guess it's okay if a narcissist in my life to put him to death, right? Again, this is the judicial branch. He was in charge of justice for the kingdom. He was the judge of the kingdom. Here was a guy who had already committed treason in a time of war. And now he's doing it again. And he's now instituting wartime ethics against somebody as the state, not as a person. So, so keep that in mind. So what's the application for us? Well, I think there's lots of them. But I, I just want to challenge us to do one thing. Wake up to one and stand up to one. Wake up to one thing and stand up to one. If manning up means waking up to responsibilities and standing up to opposition, then I want you to think for a moment about one area, one responsibility you need to wake up to. Do you have a commitment that you made that you have not followed through on? Is it in your marriage that you need to wake up to invest in your marriage? Is it in your family life that you realize that you have made the kids more important than your spouse? Is it that you made work more important than your wife? Do you need to wake up to that? Do you need to wake up to modeling your faith so that your kids see the faith lived out before them? You need to wake up. Is it financial giving with everything God's entrusted you and everything God's given to you? And you are not giving back to God as a way of saying, I trust in you. And you've never woken up to that. You say, oh, it's it's, 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 it's pastor supposed to say that kind of thing. Have you ever awoken, awakened to the need to step into that responsibility? What about God's word? Have you really started a spiritual discipline of saying, I want to get into God's word so that I can walk it out, so that I can live it out? Just like God says through David to Solomon. Do not turn to the left or to the right of what God says. And you're like, do you really know what God even says about the situation you're in? Or do you need to start a spiritual habit of investing in that and, and diving into that? Are there some ways in which you need to begin to affirm people and show kindness to people that you made promises to? Do you need to go back to a commitment you made and wake up to the responsibility of keeping that commitment even though it's hard? Do you need to make up for things you've done in the past by apologizing and making restitution? Wake up. Or maybe there's some things you need to stand up. Maybe there's one thing you need to stand in opposition to. Maybe it's an unhealthy behavior. Maybe the thing you need to stand up against isn't an adonage in your life. Maybe it's an unhealthy or unhappy temptation in your life. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's overspending. Maybe it's medicating instead of learning how to deal with disappointment. But you need to man up, step up, wake up, and stand up against that opposition and say, I need to finally get serious about this. And if that means counseling, I need counseling. But I need to seriously take on, because if I don't take this on, this temptation is going to impact me. It's going to spiral down my marriage. It's going to impact future generations. I've got to stand up against it. Or maybe that's spiritual. And there's certain moments in my life that God awakens me to the spiritual warfare going on. It was about two years ago, I just felt intense spiritual warfare against my family. So every night as my kids are going to bed, I would literally walk around the house and I would pray, Ephesians 6. God, I'm putting on the full armor of God. I wrestle not against principalities and powers, but rulers of the dark age. And as I began to pray about it, I pray for Sierra and I pray for Quinn and breaking soul ties from, from his adopted par- and his birth parents. I pray for God's protection over us. I put on the breastplate of righteousness and make sure my identity was being found in Him. And man, I just found God work incredible ways during that season. And then I got wooed back into passivity. Oh, good, it's taken care of. We're in a battle, my friends. A battle. 
Are we taking the spiritual battle seriously and are we standing up in opposition to these forces that are around us? And sometimes standing up means that you need to break some unhealthy patterns. That maybe there's some people manipulating you in your life right now and you need to set some healthy boundaries in that. Say, I'm not going to be part of the gossip. I'm not going to be part of the division. I'm not going to stand for that kind of abusive behavior. In fact, here's a cycle of abuse that happens all the time. If things are going well, it's the honeymoon period. Then tension builds and the person blows up. Then they say they're sorry. And what happens is you get farther and farther and farther away from healthy behavior. Instead of comparing where you're at to healthy behavior or sort of normal (laughs) dysfunction that we all have with sins in our life, you go, well, he didn't hit me in a while. He didn't hit me as hard as last time. And I've just walked with couples over the years who get more and more involved in these kind of dysfunctional patterns. And they get so entrenched in it because they spent so much time in it that they can't stand up to move toward healthy relationships. Stand up. I had a boss a few years ago who uh, always got into these triangulated patterns with his mom. His mom, sort of her go-to pattern was they're all adults, but talk about brother behind his back, and you're always in this family gossip and triangles. And he turned to his mom one time and said, Mom, I love you. I want to talk to you regularly, but I'm no longer going to talk about my brother on the phone with you ever because it's just not healthy. I don't feel like I'm respecting my brother. Mom, I can't believe you'd say that. I just am trying to help everybody. He called up his brother. I want you to know I'm not going to talk about you behind your back. Please don't talk about me behind my back. Well, Mom, of course, that's how, sort of how she felt needed, <laughs> triangulating all the conflict that she created. But he broke the pattern. He stood up against that. I don't know what it will be for you. But man up. Wake up to responsibilities God has for you. And stand up against whatever unhealthy temptations, whatever unhealthy patterns are going on in your life. And know that that power to do that comes from Jesus Christ. For he is the one person who woke up to responsibilities. For when he was in a garden and did not want to go there, he said, I'm going to do what needs to be done, that you and I would have peace with God. Not my will, but yours be done. And he's the one that stood up, ultimately against the ultimate opposition of Satan, in the wilderness, when he was offered the kingdoms, he was offered money, he was offered to prove himself, to prove you really who you say you are, and he said, it is written, it is written, it is written, you shall only worship the Lord your God. So in these lessons of leadership, we don't, fight for victory, we fight from victory by the ultimate king who manned up, the ultimate leader who stood up for us, the person and Savior who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. God, we have never been the followers we need to be, but you have always been the God you promised to be. And we ask that you give us the wisdom to handle complex, difficult leadership environments and to do it with integrity and to do it from a place of confidence, knowing that we are fully yours and we have nothing to fear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. As you head out today, oops, as you head out today, if you want some tickets to the Easter um, services, we have seven of them. They're going to be down by the fireplace. See you all next week.